adoption. It's a very important thing, especially if you're the one being adopted. But what happens when there's an interracial adoption? What happens when you have a black child adopted by a white family? Very interesting. We're going to find out a little bit more about that on this show of St. Louis in Tune. Greetings, listeners in listener land. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune, and thank you for joining us for fresh perspectives on issues and events with experts, community leaders, and everyday people who are driving change and making an impact that shapes our society and world. I'm your host, Arnold Stricker. Co-host Mark Langston is on assignment today. I hope I baited you folks enough about what's going to happen today in our show, but first we're going to return to civility. It's always important to be civil in society today, folks. Show respect for your children's teachers and teach your children to respect them, too. Great thing to do. Sometimes, and as a former educator, as a retired school administrator, I saw parents shaming teachers and while the kids were watching, and it just set a horrible example. So almost all teachers share these common things. They love kids. They want to help kids learn, and they are underpaid. So if you really believe your child's teacher is a bad apple, approach the principal and do something about it. Show respect for your child's teacher and teach your children to respect them too. I'm not saying all the teachers are wonderful. We're all people, and sometimes we have different strengths, and we all have different weaknesses. But talk through things. Don't just go crazy. So be respectful in every way that you can. Our guest today is Alea Rachel. She is the author of Seeking Forgiveness, which is a book that's been out about a year, but she's going to be speaking and presenting her book at the Jewish Book Festival on Sunday, November the 12th at 7 p.m. out at the J, and she comes from a literary background. She uh, has published authors on both sides of her family tree. We're going to talk about that a little bit. She's been writing short stories since she was a little girl and achieved her first public works not in elementary school, not in middle school, not in high school, but while in college at the University of Michigan in the literary publication Prism and the Right Stuff. She attended the University of Iowa's summer writing workshop, placed fifth out of 18,000 entries in the 72nd Writer's Digest writing competition, and her first novel, The Other Shakespeare, earned an honorable mention in the Wishing Shelf Book Awards. We're going to talk about that briefly, too. She's originally from Detroit, Michigan, lives now in St. Louis with her husband and son, teaches at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, and Seeking Forgiveness, this book we're going to talk about, has been named a Forward Indie Silver Book Award winner. Congratulations, Leah. Thank you. Thank you very much. And welcome to St. Louis in Tune. So, this is not your first love, I would say, but it's been such a uh, a heartthrob in your life that you said, I still have to keep writing because you don't do this during the day, but you right. do this a lot. Actually, I would say it is my first love. I would say that I'm okay. unfortunately risk averse. And I started off, as you were saying, my first publications in college. And so I was a creative writing major first. And then I read all the stories about how people starve <laughs> as artists and writers. And I was risk averse and decided. And at the same time, I was good at math. So I chose a college major where I thought I'd make a living. And I was raised mostly by a single mother. My dad died early. We were always worried about money. So 
I chose a career where I thought I could make some money and was, but was always writing on the side. And so I've never given it up. And I will say among my faculty colleagues, we had a lunch a couple years back where it turned out that all of my colleagues, I don't know if this is good to admit, but becoming college professors was our second choice. (laughs) (laughs) Amongst my colleagues, one, if they could have had their druthers, would have been like a principal investigator. They love solving mysteries. Yeah, another one would have actually been like a stuntman in movies. (laughs) Wow. So all of us have these sort of loves. And I, in writing, I was a, I wish I'd taken the plunge years ago, but I was nervous I wouldn't make enough money. And so I've just kept it as a side hobby. Now talk, talk about this background that you have, this pedigree in your family tree of writers, because sure. it goes back even to your grandmother, right? Yeah. So my grandmother, so my mother's side of the family is originally from Turkey. And my grandmother actually is a very well-recognized um, poet and playwright in Europe. And there's one city in the country of Turkey that actually has a mosque. Um, a synagogue and a church, all three, um, very near to each other. And my grandmother wrote a poem about that, and it became so popular, the government put it on a metal plaque, and it's now in the center of the city. So if you go ever to the city in Turkey, Ortakoy, you'll see this plaque um, that my grandmother wrote. And so I'm always very proud of that. And that was my mother's side of the family, my father's side of the family. And so my mother's side of the family is actually Sephardic Jews from Turkey. My father's side of the family is very Roman Catholic. My father was actually a priest. He was a Marinol who left the priesthood to marry my Jewish mother, which, as you can imagine, created waves. And I bring in my one of my uncles, who was also a priest, wrote a number of books, liturgical books. And so he was famous, especially when I, where I was growing up for those. But I bring this up because my background, I feel like one of the themes in my life, and we all have sort of themes and threads, is the bringing together of worlds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I grew up with this Roman Catholic Jewish world definitely colliding and influencing my life. And the book where going to talk about is about my interracial family, so bringing together black and white in one family. And I'm a professor who of economics, and yet I write, and so many people think like economics and writing don't mix either, so <laughs> I feel like I, I seem to have a habit of, of bringing these different worlds together. Now let's get into the book a little bit because uh, it's about your son, mm-hmm. uh, and it, some of it is what I would say nonfiction and some of it is fiction and you did some of that to protect his identity and the situations that go on in your family and mm-hmm. I think we all respect that but some of the greatest lessons that you learned along the way but I want you to think about that but describe the book a little bit yeah. for folks about what it's about and get into a little detail but not enough that they won't sure. want to buy the book so I describe it as a semi-autobiographical narrative memoir. So it's about a white woman who adopts a black son and figures out she really doesn't quite know what she's doing, <laughs> doesn't know what she's in for. And so this is very true. So I'm a white woman who adopted a black son through the foster system here in St. Louis and had a lot to learn. You can read and, and think you're aware of issues and, and still have a lot to learn. Um, but it is uh, fiction, officially, and semi-autobiographical uh, for a couple reasons. The main reason um, is to protect my son. So it's adopt a son to use him to write a book. <laughs> I wrote the book because so many interesting things were happening to us, and I would have friends say, you could have got to write that story down. And I have so many people coming to me with questions about interracial adoption. that, And I am an author, having published books before, so I wanted to write this book. But I did want to protect my son. So his the 
detail in the book around him. Um, his backstory is his story to tell, so it's different in the book. The book, the, the child is a little bit older than my actual son. The names are different. Once you change some of that and it officially becomes fiction, the second reason I did it this way is to make the plot a little bit better. If we're already going to be fiction. You might as well make it more of a page turner. So most people who have read it told me they read it in one or two nights. It's definitely a page turner because mm-hmm. it's a, it essentially starts off with a mother's worst nightmare where you get, I don't know if it's the absolute worst nightmare, but a nightmare that you get a call in the middle of the night that your son's been arrested and you need to go down and figure out what's why he was arrested, if you can get him out, what's happening. You worry about his safety, especially if he's a black son. And so the book begins with that, and then the mother has to figure out what to do, how to help her son. And while she's at the detention center waiting, because she has to wait a number of hours, she recounts their life together, trying to figure out how they got to this point. And so it's the recounting, and each chapter has an episode, like bringing him home and adopting him and what that was like. And then the first time... They had some racial incidents, and there's trying to choose a chapter on choosing a school for him, a chapter on religion and raising him, and uh, chapters on medical issues and taking someone who's adopted. Some of these issues are about adoption, not even just interracial adoption. Anyway, and it recounts raising a son and having an interracial family, and the mother's trying to figure out what led to the predicament they're in. Now, you're not an expert in interracial or what is also called transracial or it's also called multiracial adoption but you are an adoptive mother Mm -hmm. and so you can speak from your experience and that's how we're going to and we're going to go in between the book and in between your experience and they probably are folding over a lot but there's a lot just to be a mom period yes even if you have if it's natural born and there's a lot to being an adoptive mother or adoptive parent just yeah. by itself, and then an adoptive parent of a transracial or interracial or multiracial yeah. child. Yeah. Now, let's pick that apart a little bit because, as as I sensed in the book, you were upset with yourself because you thought you should be a better mother. Mm-hmm. But if you've never been a mother before, yes. <laughs> what do you do? So yeah. how, how did you respond to that? I, so I think – so the book is very much about motherhood and from the mother's perspective. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great book club pick because there are so many issues to discuss. But if I'm asked about a target audience, it's definitely anybody who's interested in like families and raising families and motherhood. And so the title of the book is Seeking Forgiveness because I, I have come to feel – that the hardest part about being a mother is that you never know if you're doing it right. There's never, there's not like an answer key where the first time your kid tells you he hates you, you look up page 283 and this is your response. Or you find out your child stole a pack of gum from the gas station. Like, how do you deal with that? You can't look up the right answer. So you deal with it and you, and then you won't know if you ever did it right. You won't know later on, oh, I should have actually done this. Or there's a part in the book, which relates to my life, where I had to decide whether to son- send my son to a school when he started school that was majority black, but perhaps not as academically high ranking or more academically high ranking, but he would be more of a min- minority. Because sadly, in this country, you can't have both if right. you have a black child. And it was, it's a real dilemma. And you have to choose one. And you'll never know if you did it or you hope and probably nothing is perfect but again the book's seeking forgiveness because you hope when they grow up and they go on to therapy and they don't blame you for absolutely everything (laughs) and you made a a really good point that it's not like i turned to page 200 whatever get the answer 
And you adopted him when he was a baby, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, from the and, hospital. And that's even different than if you're adopting some uh, a child who's a little older, whether they're in elementary school or whether they're a teenager. There's other different dynamics going on there. So I yeah. think it was great that you were able to get him as yeah. an infant and as a baby. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I, so we entered the foster system as foster parents. And so we didn't even know if we'd be able to adopt at all. And that is the way you should go in. It's my understanding and it makes sense that the foster system is a little, they get annoyed with people who become foster parents hoping to adopt. It's mm-hmm. called foster to adopt. You should go in knowing that the primary objective is reunification of the child of the family. And that's fine. And that is what my husband and I intended to do. And if it doesn't work out, sometimes a child come up for adoption. But And I remember going in and saying to my husband, let's do this because I want to do this. Uh, but I have no idea how hard it's going to be to have a child in your home and then have to give them back. And I said, and we met, you know, they make, have you take classes and, and whatnot. And, you know, we met a number of people. There was one woman I met who had fostered a number of children. She was hoping to adopt and couldn't. And I met her when she just returned a child and was crying because she really missed him. And I said to my son, we'll do it. If it's too emotionally draining, I might not be able to do this more than once or twice. But we were very aware that the goal is reunification with birth family, for sure. And it just so happened that our very first placement turned into a a situation where adoption came up, and we were like, yeah, for sure, let's adopt him. So how long was it when you had submitted paperwork to be in a a family that would want to take in kids and watch over them versus the time for the adoption? So the distance from becoming a foster parent, right? Yeah. Yeah. So to become a foster parent took a year or two with all the classes and things you have to take. And then it took a little while longer to have a placement because we were asking for younger placements. Mm -hmm. And then after that, so after that, it's based a lot by the laws in your state. So every state is different. And yeah, I like how you mentioned, I'm not an expert in this. I can only tell you my experience. But I did learn through this that used to be in the 80s and early 90s that children in the foster system would be in the foster system for a very long time because you give birth parents a chance to get a job and get their life together to get their child back. And then they would get close and then fall back and get close and fall back. So you'd have children never having permanency. So laws were passed in many states and Missouri included in the 90s. And I think it's 1995, 1996 in Missouri, where they put a time limit on that. So birth parents now get, I think it's 15 months or about a year and a half. And then after that, if they haven't made progress, then the child it's called termination of parental rights that just mm-hmm. will happen and the child comes up for adoption kind of a thing. Very interesting. This is Arnold Stricker of St. Louis in Tune. We're talking to Leah Rachel about her book, Seeking Forgiveness. This book has been out for about a year now, right? Yeah. And readers give it a great review, five-star review. It also an Indies winner. Leah suggests it's also a good book club. For those of you book club folks out there, it's, I'll, I'll tell you how many pages here I have in front of me. It, it was a quick read. Yeah. I, I did it in a couple of nights, 154. Mm-hmm. And I like the way that you do weave in and out historical things that are going on in, in life. As you were writing this, let me ask you this. How long did this take you to get this done? So I've, I've written a couple books. This is my second published one. And usually the – I call it draft zero. I don't call the first draft. A draft zero, that helps with writer's block to be like, this can just be junk. But that first draft takes under a year. I mean, I do have a day job, so I write in the mornings for two, three hours every morning. So that usually maybe takes 10 months. and then But then there's a lot of writing and rewriting. I mean, I do believe that successful writing is editing. Mm-hmm. And I can go through as many as like 10 rounds of revision. So any book will take two to three years by the end. And this, and your first book, describe your first book. So my first book is called The Other Shakespeare, 
And what it is, the, it's a historical fiction novel based in 16th century England. And it basically imagines what would have happened had William Shakespeare been born a woman. And so I'm not the first to think of this. Actually, I got the idea for this book because Virginia Woolf, in A Room of One's Own, if you read that book, she has like a one, two paragraph little thing in the book where she says, what if Shakespeare had been born a woman? Uh, I can tell you she wouldn't have been educated and would have been forced into marriage and all these things. And I remember reading those two paragraphs and thinking, I want to write that novel. Mm. (laughs) And so I I very much follow what uh, Virginia Woolf predicted. She doesn't get an education, loves the theater and runs off because they're forcing her into marriage and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, so it's the story of had Shakespeare been born a woman. And I will say I like that book. It got very good reviews as well. But it, it didn't end as hopefully as this one, Seeking Forgiveness. So one of the good things about Seeking Forgiveness, and I'm definitely not going to tell you the ending, but I feel like there's a hopeful message at the end. Mm-hmm. There's all these trials and difficulties and dismay and interracial issues and just racial issues, uh, but it ends uh, with a hopeful message. So as you as you were writing this and as you're looking back now uh, – thinking about this, and you've done many interviews, you're going to be also, I want to repeat again, back out at the J for the Jewish Book Festival on November the 12th at 7 p.m., and this is uh, Missouri's homegrown talent, so there will be several Missouri authors that will be speaking about their books, and Leah will be one of those authors. What lessons did you learn in the process of this, or that you can impart to people who are maybe in the midst of a an adoption like this or are anticipating it or contemplating it? What, what yeah. advice I mean, do you give? I, so I think there's probably a few lessons. One is you do have to be very open and willing to learn and make yourself uncomfortable and immerse yourself. If you're going to have an interracial adoption, you should not put the onus on the child to adjust entirely to your life. I feel like it really is true you shouldn't adopt a black son and then just put him in a white atmosphere and have him adjust. <laughs> you should put yourself in area atmospheres and movies and music and parties and things where you're the minority, you're the white minority, and learn about African-American culture. I spent, I listened to a lot of podcasts, and it's funny, even my son, as he's getting older, he'll come home from school and mention stuff, and I'll know what he's talking about. He's like, how do you know that? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, the world of podcasts. But, and friends, it's very important to have people over to your home that are the race of the child that you adopt so they don't feel like they don't see it around you and in their life and as your friends. And and it it takes effort. I guess the thing I'd say is, I mean, I grew up in Detroit, so I have a best friend who's African-American. She's in the book. And I've had friends who are African-American as I grow up. But I will say that most of my African-American friends are female. I've, I don't have as many that are male. And that dawned on me a few years ago, especially as my son, I felt could use more African-American role models. And I literally actually had to make effort to find friends. It's not easy, and you have to make effort as a lesson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm rambling at this point. Oh, no, you're fine. Mm-hmm. Now, you said you have a, some, a snippet of the, the book that you would like to read. Sure. And so people can get a flavor for this, because we're going to do that, folks. I'm teasing you out a little bit here, and then we'll take a little brief break. And then I ask Leah if she would respond to some suggestions that are given online about interracial adoption and how she would respond to those kind of thoughts. This is an excerpt from Seeking Forgiveness by Leah Rachel. Okay, this is a two-minute excerpt, and in the beginning, it's just to set it up, the mothers had just had a fight with her husband, and they're about to be divorced. I felt like a failure. 
That's what no one tells you. Divorce is so common nowadays, you think before it happens to you that it's no big deal, that it's just another familiar, if unfortunate, inconvenience, like a root canal. But it's so much more personal than that. When someone leaves you who you thought would be by your side forever, who you thought had made a promise to stay with you, who you assumed would put in the effort, it's a betrayal of the bitterest kind. And you can't help but wonder what you did to deserve it. It felt as if someone had pulled the plug on my life, and both the electricity and the light had gone out. I could sense miles by my side, and I looked up from my crying. I knew I needed to pull myself together for my son. Miles was patting my back like I always patted his when he was sick or sad. Mama, he said softly. Yes, baby, I replied, drying my eyes with the bottom of my t-shirt. Miles was holding his hand out in a fist. I looked at it, confused, until I realized that he wanted to give me something. I reached my hand out to his, and my son opened his palm over my own. His fingertips grazed my skin, and I felt a Lego minifigure drop into my grip. I looked down at the figurine, straight brown hair, round dark glasses, short skirt, a determined expression on her face. She looked remarkably like me. It's you, my son confirmed, and she's got your favorite things, coffee and a book. The minifigure was indeed holding a little square book in one hand and a round red mug in the other. I was wide-eyed at the likeness. I turned the minifigure over in my hands. It's perfect. I keep it with me, Miles said, as if admitting a secret, in my pocket. At the other school, I bring it every day and hold on to it. You brought this to school every day? How did I miss that, I wondered. How did he not lose it or have it confiscated by the teachers? Yes, but you need it more now. Thank you, I said hoarsely, taking the Lego figure from my son and wiping away my tears. That minifigure became a sort of talisman between my son and I. When he had a bad day at school or a hard time sleeping at night, I'd slip it into his coat pocket for him to find later when he needed it. Miles would keep it for a few days, and then, when I seemed particularly sad, usually after another argument with Nate, I'd go to my room and find it nestled on the pillow of my bed. We quietly passed it back and forth between us, never admitting anything out loud, never having to. It was just a Lego minifigure passed between mother and son, a reminder that we were loved, that somebody was paying attention. I thought that was a wonderful motif that flowed through the book, that little Lego figure. It does come up later, yep. <laughs> and was that something that is real? Oh, yeah, that's real. And actually, we had two. We had a loving one that we passed back and forth, and I first found in his coat pocket hidden, or you know, he showed me where he hid it in his coat pocket. But we also had an evil Lego minifigure that was like a hot potato. <laughs> Because it had this very scary face that scared my son, so he didn't like it. So he would like, you take it. And then and then I'd hide it in his room. When he'd find it, you would see, hear him scream. He's like, ah, because he'd found it. And he'd run to your bedroom and try to hide it in your bedroom for you to find it a few days later. So What, what a great thing. Yeah, and it ended up finally in the fish tank. Just. <laughs> <laughs> Scaring the fish. Yes. It's there right now. <laughs> We're talking to Leah Rachel about her book, Seeking Forgiveness. She's going to be speaking at the Jewish Book Festival on November the 12th. That's Sunday at 7 p.m. Folks, you can get some tickets. Just go to the 
I'll, I'll get you the website after as soon as we're done. But you can go to Leah's website. Mm-hmm. It's uh, Leah Rachel. It's L E A. R-A-C-H-E-L dot com. Mm-hmm. And you can check out a little bit more about her. So we're going to come right back and we're going to talk about some other things that are going on in interracial adoption. And we'll get some insights from our guest. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston of St. Louis and Tune. We'll be right back. St. Louis in Tune, we strive to bring you informative, useful, and reflective stories, as well as interviews about current and historic issues and events that involve people, places, and things. We cover a wide range of topics, such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports, and that's just to name a few. While St. Louis in Tune originates from the Gateway City and covers local topics, we also connect to what's going on nationally as well. If you missed any of our previously aired programs of St. Louis in Tune, simply visit stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com. There you'll find the show notes and everything that was mentioned in that episode and all the other great episodes as well. And if you've got an area that you'd like us to examine deeper, just let us know by dropping us a note at stlintune at gmail.com. That's stlintune at gmail.com. St. Louis in Tune. It's heard Monday through Friday on the usradionetwork.com and many great radio stations around the U.S. and, of course, right here in St. Louis. Our website, again, is stlintune.com. Visit us today. That's stlintune.com. This is Arnold Stricker of St. Louis in Tune on behalf of the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation. In 1857, the Dred Scott decision was a major legal event and catalyst that contributed to the Civil War. The decision declared that Dred Scott could not be free because he was not a citizen. The 14th Amendment, also called the Dred Scott Amendment, granted citizenship to all born or naturalized here in our country and was intended to overturn the U.S. Supreme Court decision on July 9, 1868. The Dred Scott Heritage Foundation is requesting a commemorative stamp to be issued from the U.S. Postal Service to recognize and remember the heritage of this amendment by issuing a stamp with the likeness of the man Dred Scott. But we need your support and the support of thousands of people who would like to see this happen. To achieve this goal, we ask you to download, sign, and share the one-page petition with others. To find the petition, please go to dredscottlives.org and click on the Dred Scott Petition Drive on the right side of the page. On behalf of the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation, this has been Arnold Stricker of St. Louis in Tune. Power of Love does a lot of things, folks, and our guest knows that. Leah Rachel is our guest today. She's talking about her book entitled Seeking Forgiveness, and that book and Leah will be at the Jewish Book Festival November the 12th at 7 p.m., and we'll talk more about that as we go on in the show. But I wanted to get into some suggestions, and these are online, folks, uh, and it's great. There's a lot of resources now. Did you have a lot of resources back when you were adopting? I mean, there were definitely books and things for sure. I, I bought some and read some, some. I felt like there wasn't a ton. So I do remember one book I liked, but it was rather old, like published a while ago. But for sure, there was. if you made the effort, you could find some things, yeah. Now, 
So the things, folks, I'm going to read are suggestions, and this particular suggestion comes from adoptuskids.org, adoptuskids.org, and it's on uh, envisioning your family and transitioning your family for a transracial adoption. So these are suggestions, and then there's some additional ones that I'll get into here. But the first one is talk with your family and friends that when you're talking about becoming a multiracial family, what that will mean, how will they respond to changes and things like that. How did your family and friends respond to the adoption of your son? It was varied, and I think one piece of advice is that you just don't know what to expect. So some relatives that you thought would be very open were more hesitant and pushed back, and others weren't. So it's very surprising. I have, for example, like the crazy uncle who says awful things at Thanksgiving, and that's in the book as well. And but and as well, there's other family very supportive. For the most part, I would say I've had supportive family and certainly friends, but even close friends. Like there's a episode I describe in the book that's a true story where you know one of my best friends growing up, we went to college together, we were even roommates for a while, and then at my when I adopted my son and then when the first holidays were coming around she asked what we were doing for Christmas and as I mentioned I identify more as Jewish because my dad died early and my mom raised me so I said I probably was going to buy my son Hanukkah presents and I don't know what we're doing for Christmas and she was very offended she said was your son's birth mother Jewish or Christian and I was like Christian She's and she, a good friend of mine said then I had to raise my son Christian even if I didn't identify as that. And I remember just being so shocked by that because would you say something like that to somebody whose point being, once I adopted my son, I'm fully 100% his mother like any other mother. Right. There's no, he's my family. Right. There's no any difference between sort of an adoptive versus non-adoptive family and how I see raising my son. So to assume that I would raise him as some religion that I'm not because of his birth mother, I felt was... Another instance of people seeing us as different and not fully a real family. And this was from a very close friend. What's the disconnect, Leah? Between the the friend that said that? No, yeah. Why do I? Because I don't understand it. Because if if you adopt someone, they are your family. I don't know. At the time, I remember it literally just being very shocked and not quite knowing what to say or do in this instance. But I will say this is like a theme that has come up in our lives and that is in the book and other writing of mine. Just boarding an airplane, I wrote a piece. This was in the St. Louis American and, and last year published in, I think, also Jewish Light. I wrote an article about this. But we were just boarding an airplane and we're sitting in our seats and my son's sitting next to me and a stewardess comes down the aisle and just stops and says, wait, are you two together? Is he with you? And I'm like, yes. (laughs) And I get that we're different colors, and maybe she's trying to be careful, but when a little child hears that over and over, he maybe starts to wonder, are we a family? Do I fit in anywhere? And it's heartbreaking. I don't know what goes on in people's minds exactly in every instance, but I can tell you this is something that at least I and I feel like other multiracial, transracial families get a lot of is that we're not quite a real family. So how do you approach your son, or Mm -hmm. if it was a daughter, Mm -hmm. 
in preparing them for those kinds of comments, or how do you deal with that after the fact that it has happened, like yeah. the, the airplane thing? I do say that I'm all about sort of radical honesty, and we talk about everything. I also feel like it should come up organically. So, like mm-hmm. talks with my son about safety and police come up organically as things happen, and and this too. So I'll just in the airplane. It was a moment, and I don't want to make a big deal of it. I don't. So I just said yes, he's with us, and we moved on. But I can tell you another story that was a much bigger deal that led to a little bit of a talk was the first time I took my son to the dentist. So he's like five and I figure, oh, it's time to take him to the dentist. I make an appointment, not thinking of anything will happen. I show up and the woman behind the counter, she looks at us funny and closes the glass partition, goes away and comes back. And then she says, we need your papers. And I said, I have the insurance cards and I'm handing her his insurance, my insurance. I just have all the information. She goes, no, no, no. I need his papers, his guardianship papers. And I'm like, guardianship papers? She's, I need his mother or whoever's in charge of him to approve being seen by the dentist. Like, I'm his mother. (laughs) And you know, she's only saying this because we're different colors, right? Like, I'm sure she doesn't say this to everybody. So I had no adoption papers on. Who brings adoption papers to the dentist? And so they refused to see us. So we had to leave. So we go, we're in the car, I'm buckling my son up in the back seat, and then I go get in the car and I put it in reverse. And when I turn my head to look behind me to reverse, I lock eyes with my son. And he says, Mom, did we have to leave because I'm black? He's five. And I said to my son, No, baby. We had to leave because mommy's white. And I bring this up because I did not want him to blame himself. And this is a conversation we've had about not him blaming himself when things like this happen and that there are other people that are unaware maybe it's not always malicious but it's not about you or us as a family and that that one led to a little more of a conversation yeah or no we're leaving because some people can't learn yeah i don't yeah i don't want to push it there but i reported them in the missouri dental board absolutely (laughs) absolutely now what about relatives who are what i would call racists yeah I sadly, I just like with anything, I think that happens. I'm sure people know you lose friends over Facebook when things happen and their relatives you don't see as often. So I will say there are relatives that has strained the relationship. Mm-hmm. And I know for good or bad. And when I'm the type of person and I document this in the book, too, I don't really back down from a fight. I feel as I get older, sometimes maybe I should just give people a little bit more time. But I will just be like, you're wrong. And I'll stand up for my son and whatnot, but then that makes it harder to continue close relationships. I find that's important, standing up for my son and making sure he's aware and making him feel comfortable that he can tell me how he's feeling in any instance. But I, I don't know. It's It has led to some cooler relationships with some family members. But if you don't stand up for him, then it gives him the impression that you don't have his back. Yes, for sure. And if it's ever in front of him, for sure, I'm going to stand up. I think, as I get, so I think I mentioned that my family's Turkish. And there's an incident I describe a little bit in the book, too, where one of my uncles said something that was offensive. And I think as I've gotten older, I think part of it might might have been translation. His native tongue is not English, it's Turkish. Mm -hmm. And I do think what he said was racist still, but I think. Sometimes, and this is what I'm saying, give people a little bit more grace mm-hmm. and a little bit more patience. Because if you just fight them, then their hackles go up and not a lot gets solved. But if you give people a little more grace and you're instead of just completely fighting, being like, mm, where's that coming from? Maybe, I don't know, maybe you could have more of a conversation. And if you have more of a conversation, maybe right. then you can 
move the needle a little bit? Yeah, that's, that's a great point. That's a great point. How about find mentors and role models for your child? Very you important. mentioned that a little bit. Yeah, and, and, and difficult, I will say. I think I mentioned in the book I have the main talk about the police given to my son by somebody else because I felt like he needed to hear it from a black man. He needed to hear I can tell him about respecting authority when it's happening and fighting it later when you're safe, and I can go over these conversations. What do I know? I'm a tiny little white Jewish woman. <laughs> and he heard me, but I felt like he wasn't always getting the seriousness. So I enlisted a black male friend to give him the talk and it seemed like it made a difference to do it that way and i've resorted my friend if she listens knows i've had i've called one of my friends and said at the time he was a fiance they're now married but said i I want another black role model for my son will your fiance just play video games with him once in a while (laughs) be his friend maybe that sounds stupid and i felt stupid asking her but she was like i get it and when we're commuting, and hopefully, if you've got good friends, they want to help you. Absolutely. And I feel like it was good that I admitted I needed help. I agree with that. I agree with that. Because mm-hmm. you did that in the book. There was something about a haircut, and I don't want right. to get into that. But a lot of things that families do deal with finances. And if you can cut you know, hair by yourself, that's great. You can save some finances. That happened to me when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And then, I, you know, you get older, you can get to the barber. But dealing with... Uh, hair yeah. of a young black gentleman right okay right. we you took him in the book you took him to a barbershop and where where i'm going with this is like art or books or if, if it's a girl dolls and things like that yeah. so and what was interesting about that yeah and again these are all based on things that ex- happened to us when your child's young and growing up and watching cartoons on saturday and whatnot so many of those role models are don't look like them mm-hmm. and so my son really wanted like harry potter hair and i'm like we all want different hair i used to want curly hair mine's straight and then and, and then he would want oh who's that guy in that one I, i'm forgetting the name of the character because it was a number of years ago now, but my son kept picking white boys' hair that he wanted, blonde and brown, but white boy hair. And I finally had to be like, sweet pea. I genuinely had always wanted curly red hair. We not all get the hair that we want. Your hair is beautiful, but your hair is not going to be those hairs no matter what we do. <laughs> and, and yeah, we, and I needed to find a good place to take him and give him a good haircut where he'd have confidence in what he looked like. Exactly. And pride. In, in right. what happens. How about a, you mentioned this earlier, enrolling in a diverse school and even a diverse school that has, uh, I, I'm reading some things here that the, where the staff is also diverse, right. just not the student body. Sure. Oh yeah. So yeah, very important. So for us, it, it was, you know, it continues to be difficult. You never know if you made the right decisions. I was just in New York at a writer's conference and was talking about this and, and I mentioned the conundrum I had, what kind of school to send them to. I researched a lot of schools and still felt like it was either more academically advanced like Clayton, which is a good school, but he'd be not the only black kid, but more of a minority or somewhere else where he'd be more in the majority, but maybe less academically rigorous. And I would get people say, what'd you choose? What'd you choose? And I asked a lot of my female black friends who were mothers. And I can remember one of my friends, Sherry, she said, I'm debating this too. And she goes, I'm sending my kid to Burroughs or whatever, really good school. He's not going to be, he's going to be one of the few black kids there, but I don't care because my son's going to be a lawyer or doctor and he might as well get used to being the only black kid in the room or the black person in the room now. So she was like, and she said, I can always bring my son home and give him the black culture at home. At school, I want him to learn to be in an environment with um, white people. That made sense. 
I thought I can't make that decision right. because I, he's not going to come home and have the black culture there. So I, I can't send him to white school and have him come home and be white. So we started off actually in a district that I had felt like was more racially diverse, but it didn't work out well. We had a really bad racial incident happen, and so we moved. So we are now in Clayton. So there, look, he's definitely not the only black kid there. I think it's 20 to 30% African-American, which is good. But like you said, role models. I know in the elementary school, the advisor was a black man, and that was very good. Right now, he's in the middle school, and there's two advisors he could have. One is white, one isn't. And I actually asked for it to not be the white person, they said no. So he does have the white advisor right now. But but I'm always advocating and trying for right. him to get the right role models. Right. And that's all you can do. Pay attention, try, and advocate for your child. So Speaking about that, does he bring up now that he's older things like that, like this would be beneficial for me, or when did that start in his life? So my son's a little younger than the child in the book. So my son is only still in middle school. And so I wouldn't say he's advocating for himself now. No, I will say that I've raised him very proud to be black and very, he loves black entertainers, hip hop music. Most of the friends he has made in the Clayton School District are other African Americans. And I, I do remember feeling like I succeeded as a parent when he said to me once, how did he phrase, he said something like, I'm sorry that you're white, but something about black is beautiful. Don't you wish you were black? <laughs> I'm forgetting the exact phrase of how I put it. And I was like, oh, I love it. He's so proud of being black. He like thinks that I'm not as attractive being white. And I'm like, oh, he's so cute. He, I don't, he's too young to advocate in terms of like advisors, but he is definitely proud of everything black. Yeah, because that, that goes into embracing new traditions or understanding the culture a little bit more. Are there new traditions that you have introduced in your family? New traditions. Or uh, celebrating other cultures. Well, obviously, like Juneteenth and stuff that we right. celebrate. Mm-hmm. And we do celebrate like Adoption Day and talk about – and again, I try to be honest with him about his backstory and stuff, which I'm not going to talk about on the air because, again, his history is his history. But but we celebrate it in the family and, and talk about it and whatnot. And I bought books on a 100 famous African Americans that as he grew older, we tried to reach a chapter, read a chapter of. I tried cooking some foods that are more – of his tradition than mine. I'm not great at it, though. That didn't last as a tradition. <laughs> or other cultural kinds of things that would make yeah. him feel like yeah. he's more at I mean, I at think home. being aware. Yeah, so like we love, so I always try to also watch, so as a family, we always try to have like one television show we're watching together. Mm-hmm. So like we love Blackish. Love, I was so sad when Blackish finally ended. And what's great about that show, it's entertaining, it's funny, and it brings stuff up. Right. So that you can talk about it. And it's an opening for him to talk about it. Cause you never know if maybe, you know, your child wants to talk about some of these issues as they're happening, but is afraid to, right? We've tried to find shows and movies that can help generate discussion. That's definitely something. Uh, I've made an effort to do. That's great. We've been talking to Leah Rachel. She is the author of Seeking Forgiveness, and she is going to be at the New Jewish Book Festival on November the 12th, which is a Sunday at 7 p.m. with a bunch of other authors. And you can get some information about that. Go to JCSTL 
excuse me, jcstl.com, jcstl.com, and there's information on the St. Louis Jewish Book Festival. It lasts from November the 5th through the 19th. We're actually going to be talking to several other authors on future shows, so you want to stay tuned for that. Leah, uh, two questions here to close out. Uh, give some advice to budding writers, mm-hmm. and then lastly, give some advice to individuals who are contemplating a transracial or an interracial multiracial adoption or those who are in the midst of it now. Sure. So for budding writers, two pieces of advice. One I'd say is don't give up. So I think I mentioned just last month I was in New York for a writer's conference meeting agents and editors and they can be mean and they can be cruel sometimes. Don't give up. If you just keep working, you'll be successful and it'll be worth it. And the second piece of advice in terms of writing is writing, in my opinion, really is rewriting and editing. So really keep at it and edit until you get a really good product before you try to like seek an agent or anything. In terms of those who are contemplating adoption or transracial or interracial or multiracial adoption, my piece of advice, it's funny, in my, I have an aunt who said this to me. She said, only thing that matters is to love your son. Just love your son. And I remember in the beginning thinking, well, that's simplistic. But I actually now think she's right. Lo- just love him to de- or her. Love your child to death and let them know you love them because it's not going to be easy. There's going to be difficult things. But if they feel that love, it's like a, a support. It's like a buffer. And it'll just it'll help get through anything that happens. Wow. That's really good advice. Kids want to be loved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Parents, it's not your job to be a friend. That comes later. Right. You can be a friend later yep. after executive function is kicked in. I have a story about that. Yeah. <laughs> executive function. <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to do that one at another time. Leah Rachel's been our guest. She's the author of Seeking Forgiveness. And folks, go to the new New Jewish Book Festival on November twelfth. You can see her at seven p.m. Get more information at jccstl org jccstl.org Leah, thanks for coming on St. Louis in Tune today Thank you so much for having me, I've really enjoyed it That's all for this hour Thanks for listening folks, don't forget when the Martians invade there's only one race, the human race and every one of us have different characteristics and is uniquely valuable St. Louis in Tune is a production of Motif Media Group and the U.S. Radio Network For St. Louis in Tune co-host Mark Langston, I'm Arnold Stricker Remember to walk worthy and let your light shine